Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for today, Wednesday, May 8th, 2019. I'm your host, Phil Lempert. Later on in the program, we will chat with Kelly Griggs, row crop farmer, one of the star farmers on the American Farm on History series, who has one of the most challenging personal issues, being a wheat farmer. Over the past few months, soybeans and soybean farmers have made headlines across the nation, and for good reason. Soybeans are the most important protein source for feed animals and a significant ingredient in many of our foods on the supermarket shelves. Soybeans are also an exceptional source of essential nutrients, providing in a 100-gram serving high contents of the daily value, especially for protein, dietary fiber, iron, manganese, phosphorus, and several B vitamins, including folate. High contents also exist for vitamin K, magnesium, zinc, and potassium. Today, Polly Ruland, CEO of United Soybean Board, joins us to discuss soybean innovation, the latest research findings, and what's next for soybean farmers. As CEO, she provides strategic leadership and management over all aspects of USB's planning and operations for the U.S. soybean industry, leading annual marketing, communications, and research efforts in accordance with the policies, goals, and objectives established by the board. Polly was also awarded an Eisenhower Fellowship for International Leaders and studied in Japan and Taiwan. Polly, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thanks, Bill. I'm really glad to be here. These days, consumers want to know more and more about all the foods that they consume, how they're grown, how they're made, shipped, and where they come from. What would you like retailers and consumers to know about U.S.-grown soybeans? You know, nobody knows better than retailers that consumers' interaction with the foods, with the brands, with the products is undergoing a significant shift right now. Consumers no longer make purchasing decisions based on just functionality. They have the means and the mechanisms to ask a lot about sourcing and about sustainability. And I think soybeans are exactly what consumers are looking for. They just they just really don't know it yet. I always call soybeans the magic bean <laughs> uh, because... Soy and soy products like meal and oil can be used in very in countless applications. In fact, we're still uncovering a lot of the opportunities in food, feed, fiber, and fuel for soybeans. Uh, U.S. soy is a very outstanding choice for consumers across the value chain. And even in industrial applications, which is what we call things like fiber and lubricants and um, paints and adhesives, Soybean offer a sustainable and renewable option to companies looking for materials to make those those things and many others. As far as animal feed goes, which you mentioned earlier, Phil, the nutritional bundle soy presents is among the most competitive options available and one of the most natural options available for animal feed. So when they are driven by consumer demand, which we know they are, food companies and retailers are also focused on environmental outcomes to measure sustainability. And sustainability is one of the things that the soybean farmers have emphasized for many, many years. So one way that the Soy Checkoff or United Soybean Board is addressing U.S. soy sustainability is through some collaborative research and some communications with other checkoff organizations like the National Corn Growers Association and the National Pork Board. In many ways, All the organizations working together, they're supplying the same markets and the same consumers, so it makes sense to coordinate on sustainability efforts throughout agriculture, and United Soybean Board is proud to do that. So you alluded to this um, a a moment ago. Um, Are there different types of soybeans for different products? 
you know, obviously you mentioned um, oil. Is there one type of, of soybean for oil, another one for consumption? Tell me a little bit about that. You know, we get that question all the time. And I think how I like to answer it is that let's start with how soybeans are what we call processed. And that's that's a bad word these days. But really, all we do with soybeans to get the elements that we need out of them is crush them. Uh, so about half of the beans we grow in the U.S. are actually crushed here. And that's the that's when we pre- prepare the beans for market. So most of the soybean, about 80%, is the protein meal that we mentioned uh, goes into animal feed and human feed. That's the market driver. So 97% of the meal, that is 80% of the bean, goes into animal ag, and 3% is used for human food, and then those um, other industrial uses that I mentioned. The other portion of the bean, when you crush a bean, is oil. So you get the meal and you get the oil. About 58% um, of the oil that's in a bean is for food uses, and we're talking about things like salad oil and frying oil and shortening and things like that. About 33% of all the oil made is used for biodiesel and bioheat, so renewable fuels. Mm-hmm. And 9% goes to industrial uses, again, that use oil, uh, things like lubricants, for example, that I mentioned before. So the other half of the beans that we don't crush here are exported primarily as whole beans, um, but soybean meal exports are growing as well. That's because we're so effective at sustainably growing and producing a high quality crop here. We have a very high quality crop in the U.S. that imports are minimal, uh, but exports are growing. So in terms of dollar value, according to the U.S. Census, U.S. soybean farmers exported a record-breaking, I might add, 2.6 billion bushels of U.S. soy and soy products last year. Now, the export market has seen some significant challenges, and mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit later about the farming challenges as right. well. So last year, we're talking about about $28 billion of soybeans and soybean products exported. So let's let's go back to the farm. What's the process for planting soybeans through the time that they're harvested? Um, we hear a lot from farmers of all kinds that they consider themselves stewards of the land. What are soybean farmers doing these days that we should know? Well, first, let's understand the, the process, as you asked about how a soybean comes to be. Uh, I, I know when the, when the China situation started developing, one of the most searched terms on Google was a soybean. People didn't know what a soybean was. Right, right. So, so let's start start with the basics of soybeans because um, you know people often see them in the field and and they can't you can't tell they're a soybean when they're growing because they're in pods like a lot of beans are or peas. So farmers grow soybeans in in many states across the United States, most commonly in the in what we call the Corn Belt, the middle part of the U.S. Uh, most soybeans are planted in the spring when the soil warms up. This spring uh, seems, seems like it'll never warm up or else it will right. never get dry, but then they're harvested in the fall. So today, soybean farming looks a lot different than it did just even 30 years ago. I, I read an article this week, can't remember where it was. It said farming has changed only incrementally in the last century. And honestly, nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, innovation and technology available on farm machinery, uh, farmers gather and analyze real-time data about soil, about plant health, about weather, about every aspect of planting uh, constantly. And then they use that data real-time to give the growing plants just the nutrients they need at the right rate and even within an individual field um, section by section. So that means less wasted input products and giving the soil exactly what it needs when it needs it. So at harvest time, 
Farmers work with uh, folks all along the value chain from field to fork to ensure that the products they produce are safe and nutritious uh, food for consumers, be those consumers pigs or chickens, or be those consumers um, people in the form of human food products. So our products always meet established standards for important things like sustainability, we have a sustainability standard, and purity. So right now, as I mentioned, most soybean farmers are just starting to plant. And I mean just started because in many parts of the soybean country, we're going to be getting rain again for the next week or more. But as they do plant, they'll monitor the health of the crop throughout the summer using that precision equipment and field expertise that I told you about. They'll measure soil, they'll measure plant health, they'll add nutrients, and they'll mitigate things like weeds and pests as they need them. So the technology is so much more advanced than it was even 30 years ago. Soybean plants, if you, if you haven't seen them growing, they typically grow to just about knee level. And they're left in the fields until they the leaves drop off and the plants dry. So if you go by in the fall and you see a field full of what looks like dried up bean pods, that's probably a soybean field. Harvest gotcha. ranges from late September to October, depending on the region. So then we harvest them dry. One acre crop produces about 50 bushels of soybeans, but yield can really change dramatically with weather, with soil type, with seed type, with pests and things we've talked about. And then the harvested beans are brought to what we call an elevator or a crush facility. And we've already talked about crush. Let's stick on weather for a second. Um, obviously, the past winter, um, the past spring, um, has really been tough for a lot of farmers across all crops, across you know practically every state in the U.S. What are some of the hurdles that soybean farmers in particular have had to overcome? And what steps are they taking to avoid these kinds of issues in the future? Well, you know... <laughs> It's an incredibly difficult season for most farmers. I've heard from several of our folks that it's the worst season in their farm's history. Wow. You cannot control the weather, right? I mean, farmers are, are, are forward facing on the environmental uh, front every day. And part of that is being completely dependent on the weather. Right now, though, part of the biggest difficulty in soybean farming is that the challenges have been compounding upon one another. Bean prices is low, are low. We have a lot of beans in storage from last year's low prices due to the trade challenges that I mentioned and other factors. And those factors date back even beyond last year. The wet right now is wreaking havoc on getting the seed into the soil. And so there's no doubt that it's a rough cycle. Late planting will mean late harvest. Uh, and, and so it's, it's tough and it's very, very tough for farmers. But the good news is that a lot of times the farmer investors in the United Soybean Board don't just work right now. We're, we're one of those organizations that works toward the future, and we think about future challenges and future solutions. So we can't control the weather, but what we can control is technology that helps us deal with um, production challenges like weather and other things so that we can do the best we can with what we're given. And part of that is like a genetic, um, when we do seed, Development, for example, we're always looking for seeds that will grow in a shorter period so that that weather won't affect us as much. And that's that's a good example of things we work on technology-wise and genetics-wise to make sure that we're doing the best we can. I'm going to I'm probably going to show my ignorance uh, for with this question, uh, but I know that there's a lot of crops, tomatoes, for example, that have gone into hothouses. Are soybeans one of those products, uh, one of those foods that could be done in a hothouse environment? You know, it, it really depends on who you ask. Uh, I saw a really interesting um, session not too long ago at a conference I was at 
on vertical farming, where they're using soybeans in vertical farms in some countries that don't have the, the land availability. Uh, soybeans don't lend themselves to those those kinds of environments as well as a tomato or or other kinds of fruits or vegetables. Um, but uh, but I think that we are developing and thinking about how soybeans might be grown because they're such a flexible product, because you can make so many things out of them in countries particularly that don't have the technology to take care of land or that might not have the land mass that we have here in the United States. So that's kind of a cutting edge question. And I don't think we've explored it as thoroughly as we're going to in the near future. So you mentioned um, it, it really being a tough season, um, not just this season, but last year, low prices, weather condition, tariffs. What can you as soybean farmers do to protect their farms and themselves uh, from this? I mean, we see in the news, you know, all the time how soybean farmers are hurting as a result of, of what's going on. Is there anything they can do? Well, soybean farmers, that what I always talk about when I, when I talk about farmers, it's really an interesting thing is farmers have to be experts in so many things. Right. They have to be risk experts. And by risk experts, I mean, when do they sell their crop? How forward are they? Are they contracted on their crop? When do they store their crop? Part of the reason why we have so many beans in storage is because last year's harvest, the prices weren't that good and and they needed to make more on their beans for various reasons, some of them political. So they put a lot of beans into storage. Soybeans are one of those more flexible crops that um, unlike a, a tomato, for example, you can keep in storage for a while as long as the conditions are right and your storage facilities are correct. But that's, you know, that's infrastructure on the farm, building more storage. So sure. there's always these this balance of knowledge that farmers have to have, be it knowledge of the environment, be it knowledge of the soil, be it knowledge of weather patterns and different genetic seed varieties and how much storage they need to have and how long they can store the bean and, you know, all this kind of information and knowledge that's coming at them all the time. And truly, I believe that it's one of the professions that is is the least recognized for the sheer breadth of knowledge that farmers have to have to make it work for them. And that's why we have Farm Food Facts to try to, you know, make it more clear. So, Polly, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I always like to talk about beans. And now here's the news you need to know. California growers implement new water rules to ensure that romaine is safe for consumption. The California Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement Board of Directors and romaine lettuce growers have introduced new measures they hope will end the recent string of E. coli outbreaks associated with their crops. California and Arizona together account for 90% of the leafy greens grown here in the U.S., Growers in both states signed the Leafy Green Marketing Agreement after the deadly 2006 E. coli outbreak associated with spinach. However, last year, doubts returned with back-to-back -back E. coli outbreaks that were linked to eating romaine lettuce. The new standards include equipment cleaning practices, proactive steps for flooding and other weather-related events, mandatory traceability measures, and buffers between growing areas and feedlots with a thousand or more animals. LGMA has always required growers to test their waters for pathogens, but the new requirements include additional safeguards that ensure that farmers categorize the source of their water and conduct testing to assure that water is safe for the intended uses. What growers need to know is that farmers are working diligently to ensure that our entire food supply is safe and encourage retailers to understand their practices and food safety adherences. 
And now that we've heard a little bit about the West, let's hear about what's happening up north. Agriculture in Alaska is booming. While it's true that Alaska may be most well-known for oil and fishing, it's also notably unique that at a time when the number of farms nationwide is declining, Alaska saw a 30% increase in ag between the years 2012 and 2017, according to USDA's latest census of agriculture. This spurt in growth can be partially attributed to the youthfulness of the state's ag industry. Alaska is now experiencing a similar trajectory to which regions like the Midwest and the South did several decades ago. Amy Pettit, the executive director of the Alaska Farmland Trust, reported in Politico, it's the wild, wild west up here. And if you have access to land, you can grow whatever you want. Alaska, affectionately known as the last frontier state, also has the nation's highest percentage of newest farmers, with 46% of its producers having fewer than 10 years' experience. It's also noteworthy that fruits and vegetables in Alaska tend to have higher sugar content thanks to the high-latitude agriculture, that is, crops that are constantly exposed to sunlight during peak season, which results in the development of carbohydrates that convert to sugars at a higher rate, making produce sweeter when harvested. What grocers need to know is that an up-and-coming trend will be produce that's imported from Alaska. And in other news related to the recent USDA census, data shows fundamental shifts occurring in American farming. Every five years, the USDA Census of Agriculture provides a conclusive guide to the trends behind the nation's farms and diets. And the latest recently released figures show some interesting dietary changes. In several instances, they show that veggies that were previously dismissed as fads or trends are now reshaping America's agricultural landscape. For example, the cultivation of sweet potatoes increased by 37%, the biggest jump of any vegetable crop. So why so much growth for sweet potatoes? Well, sweet potatoes have fewer carbs and calories, as well as high levels of vitamin A and C. So it would appear that this shift is related to consumer demand, as consumers have shown an increasing interest in healthier eating and being more aware of diet and the foods that they eat. Dark leafy greens have gone from being a trendy supplement to becoming a staple of the ag establishment, reinforcing the link to consumers striving to eat more healthy by eating their leafy greens. What grocers need to know is that shoppers are more willing to experiment and try new foods, especially those that have had documented nutritional benefits. So be sure to promote these foods, but also include nutritional facts. So how can we better ensure that these healthy food options remain safe and available for consumption? Expanding blockchain-based grocery store network can help improve food safety. Albertsons is the latest grocery store to join the blockchain-based system for tracing food from the farm to the store shelf. The Food Trust, which was introduced in 2017 by Walmart and IBM, already includes more than 80 brands attempting to bring blockchain-based traceability to the food supply. Other retailers and companies that are involved include Dole, Kroger, Nestle, Tyson Foods, and of course, Walmart. Members of the network have the ability to share digital, distributed, and immutable data. Therefore, those across the supply chain can trace and authenticate products and optimize their processes. The Food Trust creates a digital record of transactions, including packaging, dates, the temperature at which a product is shipped, and when it arrives in a grocery store. 
If a national food recall occurs, this blockchain can help retract affected products off the shelves more quickly and efficiently. To reinforce consumer confidence in our food supply, these participating companies are establishing this trust to strengthen our food supply. We need to prevent foodborne illness outbreaks, and the ones that do occur, we need to find the source faster. What grocers need to know is that every retailer needs to join the Food Trust. And now let's head down to Humboldt, Tennessee, and meet Kelly Griggs. This fifth-generation family operation is the model of what modern farming can be. Kelly leads the family with an open heart and a no-nonsense approach, while Matt, her husband, leads the farm with five generations of experience behind him and the latest technology in front of him. This is truly a team operation, with every member of the family pitching in, even the adorable nine-year-old Carter. Kelly, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you for having me. Now, the family farm was started back in 1882 when your husband's, I guess, great-grandfather, Robert Buchanan Griggs, bought a cotton gin and moved on to grow cotton, hay, cattle, and even opened up a general store. Now, Matt is running the farm. He's added a lot more crops to it. And one thing I know that the family prides itself on is sustainable practices that heal the soil and protect the environment. Tell me a bit more about that and why it's so important. Well, we started doing cover crops back in 2011, and it was because we were trying to, well, Matt was researching and figuring out a way to add more organic matter to our soil, considering we have, our our soil is very sandy, Mm -hmm. and he just thought, well, you know, let's try it. So we tried a few acres and radishes, and then as the years progressed and learning more and more about it, we are now doing seven to nine different species um, behind different crops. And we always have something green growing on. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good thing. It is. It's a, it's a great thing. Um, It keeps a lot of our weeds away. It's, you know, um, he's got more of the scientific answer behind it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My common sense answer is we're giving the soil the nutrients and the vitamins it needs. You know, if it's only getting the nutrients and the vitamins three to four months out of the year, right. you're looking at seven to nine months of it just sitting there dead. So keeping the the land green all year round is really beneficial to, you know, the the crops that we grow and beneficial to the soil. Well, it's a lot of common sense. It would be like, you know, if I ate three months of, of the year and I didn't eat the other nine months of the year, I'm not going to be that healthy. I, I also see that, that you're being a bit modest. I know that Matt has won a bunch of local and national awards, Soil Health Hero, Outstanding Cooperator of the Year, Tennessee Conservation Farmer of the Year, Southern Region Conservation Legacy Award, to name just a few making your farm really one of the leaders in the nation, what advice can you give to other farmers? I guess my advice would be that, you know, this day and age with the prices so low, um, the prices of putting a crop in the ground is higher and higher every year. Mm -hmm. If you don't find a way to keep your farm going and learning how to do it differently, there's no way you're going to survive. So you have to adapt to what the environment and what the rest of the world is basically doing to you. We are the lowest people on the giant totem pole. 
So to survive, you have to figure out what is the best way to make you the most money and to keep your business in business. So Matt is a, he's a giant nerd. Um, <laughs> he's, and, and I've tried I'm myself. Not tell him <laughs> no, oh no, he okay. knows, he knows. Yeah, okay. um, I tell everyone, you know, my yeah. husband is the mad scientist behind all yeah. the crops. And if it wasn't for him constantly researching, we probably wouldn't be in business. Um, you know, you have to research, you have to branch out and find what works for you. Now, our cover crops work for us because of where we are. But that doesn't mean that our cover crops are going to work for someone in the state of Washington. So it's really just really finding out what works in your area and what works on your farm. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about you. You come from Chicago. You now live in Humboldt. Has to be a huge change. Aren't you practically in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. So I've been here uh, 19 years and I had the opportunity to move here. And living here after a year, I thought, why in the world would I go back? So Mm. (laughs) uh, it's it's a different way Mm. of life. It's very slow. It's very peaceful. The people are amazing. And for me, marrying a farmer, I never in a million years thought I'd become one myself. Um, I'm just a very, very, I'm a very hard worker. (laughs) Well, we're glad, we're glad you did. Now, also, I'm going to stick with you on a personal level. You know, one of your crops are wheat and you were just diagnosed with celiac disease. What? How are you handling that? Yeah. So actually, uh, two years ago, I had to EpiPen myself in a cover crop field and we realized I was extremely Mm. allergic to all grasses, but wheat was not on the list. And the last couple of years have progressively gotten worse. And last year I got extremely sick and it started right as wheat harvest. And I just could not figure Mm. out why I was so ill. And by the end of November, we realized something was severely wrong with me and went to the doctor and found out, she said, you have celiac. Your body is absolutely rejecting wheat and you are breathing in the purest form of it, which is the wheat dust. So she said, your job is literally going to kill you. And I said, well, challenge accepted. So, um, yeah, my, we don't know how I'm going to handle it this year. Um, I've done everything I could possibly do in the last couple of months to prepare my body and get my immune system ready for it. But I really don't know until we get in there, but I will do everything that it takes to get my job done, but also get it done effectively and safely. So I am the person who plants all the soybeans behind the wheat. So we don't have anybody else to do that. Mm -hmm. I've got to figure out what's going to work for me and what's going to be best. And what's going to be best for the farm? And Matt and I are going to figure that out. No, and I'm and I'm sure you will. So uh, back to American Farm. How has your life changed, if at all, since appearing on it? It hasn't, which is <laughs> really <laughs> it's really weird. Um, I've had a few people message me through Facebook and say thank you for opening your farm to the world and mm. really showing what our job is and what our lifestyle and how hard it is. And that's been from people in the agriculture community. And I have a lot of friends from Chicago say, oh my gosh, I never knew in a million years. So and they just think it's really cool that, uh, you know, that they're 
a girl from the suburbs of Chicago is driving a combine and a cotton picker. So I think um, it's cool too. <laughs> um, yeah, one of my first jobs on the farm was actually driving our 18 wheeler, and I was solely responsible for delivering our corn and our soybeans and our wheat the first two years that I worked full time. And I was the only woman farmer who drove her own product. So um, the looks and the stares were, I'd take some getting used to, but I'm um, sure. I'm sure. it was kind of a fun, to me, it was fun. Um, a lot of people who grew up around this, they don't think it's fun. But for me, I think it's it's fun and interesting. So, um, but no, really it hasn't changed. Um, I think if this were to go on for a couple of years, it probably would. But so far it's been very quiet and nice and people have been so positive about it. And that's made our lives easier. Sure. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for for sharing your insights with us, uh, talking about the experience uh, right here on Farm Food Facts. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab. And visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.